This is God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. You might remember the song uh, from almost 30 years ago, What If God Was One Of Us, uh, by Joan Osborne, but it was written by Eric Bazilian from the Hooters. And uh, the main thrust of the song is, what if God was one of us? And the chorus is, just a, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on a bus trying to make his way home. And there's verses that kind of say, if God had a um, face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? And the, it's a very ironic song because um, neither the songwriter nor uh, the woman who sang it um, would really uh, profess to be following Jesus in any way. And it's quite an ironic song because... Uh, The reality is this, of course, happened. God was one of us in Jesus Christ. And this is what the whole point of Christmas is, right? God was one of us. God was uh, walking among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth in the area of Palestine uh, 2,000 years ago. God was actually one of us. And John's introduction to his gospel, the prologue, remembering the prologue is the first 18 verses, the first words, like an introduction. The whole uh, point of John's introduction is centered on this reality, namely how God has revealed himself to the world. How God has revealed himself to the world. The self-existent eternal word has manifested himself to all people in Jesus of Nazareth. The unseen God has now revealed himself in Jesus. And verse 14 of our passage, a very common uh, passage uh, around Christmas time, which I was saying to Ben before that this wasn't actually planned for Christmas, but by God's providence, we are in this passage at Christmas time. Verse 14 could be really seen as like the climax of John's introduction. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. The idea is the word who was in the beginning, who was God and who is, who was with God and who is God, the word became flesh, literally pitched his tent to dwell among us And this is the answer of that song written 30 years ago, What If God Was One of Us? This is how it has happened. The Word who created everything, who was in the beginning before anything else was there, has taken on flesh, has become flesh, and has dwelt among us. This is the miracle of the incarnation. And this verse gives us 
I believe, a clear picture of God's desire in relation to his people. So this is revealing what God's heart, God's desire is toward his people. It's like the big picture of this passage and the big picture of our uh, sermon today is that God's desire is to dwell among us so that we would see his glory, which we see in Jesus. God's desire is to dwell among us so that we would see his glory, which we see in Jesus. You would be hard-pressed to find a more satisfying and fulfilling reality to live by than that statement. Understanding God's desire is to dwell among us so that we would behold his glory, which we see in Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our life, to behold the glory of God, which we see in Jesus, and to know that God's desire is actually to dwell among us, among sinful people. He wants to atone so that he can dwell among us. And this is the lens that we're going to view our passage through today, through God's desire to dwell among us, so that we can see his glory and how this is realized fully in Jesus. So firstly, let's look at dwelling among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The self-existent, eternal God, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the one who is outside of time and space, has entered into creation, into his creation. He has become flesh and he has dwelt among us. And under this first section of God's desire to dwell among us, there are two main uh, parts of this, two main areas of significance. The first area is the significance of the word becoming flesh, and then the significance of God actually dwelling or pitching his tent among us. So firstly, let's just look at the word becoming flesh. It's important to realize John's Context, and I don't want to labor this too much, but I think it's helpful to remember that John, of course, has a context, the gospel writer, as he's writing this. And in the Greco Roman uh, world mixed with Hebrew thought, the logos, which logos is the word for word in the original uh, Greek language, the logos was like the system of order behind the universe. Uh, the, everything that lied behind all of the rationality of our world was this divine logos, the creator of the system of order. And in a <clears throat> Neoplatonic view, which was very common in a Greek culture, the idea was that uh, you would ascend to the divine logos through intellectual ascent, sometimes through spiritual knowledge. This is like what gave birth to Gnosticism, if you've ever heard of Gnosticism before. It's this idea that if you have special knowledge, you can ascend to the divine logos, and that's the purpose of your life. So the way that you would ascend to the logos, ascend to the word, is by actually having special knowledge. And in this uh, dualistic environment of John's culture, the flesh was inherently bad, the spirit was inherently good, and there was such a separation that it didn't matter what you did in the flesh, so long as you were intellectually ascending to, spiritually, to the divine logos. So you could be 
having orgies at the temple and in all sorts of sinful things. And that's just the flesh. As long as you're uh, spiritually ascending to the Logos, everything's fine. It was a very um, dualistic understanding of flesh being bad, spirit being good. Now, this is important to understand because, therefore, in this context, the idea of the Logos, the idea of the divine word becoming flesh was utterly absurd. That's crazy. That is crazy to think that the the divine word, the thing which lies behind all of the rationality of our universe, the thing which we're supposed to ascend to, rather than us ascending, would actually condescend and take on flesh. That's a crazy statement. A divine creator would never take on sinful flesh. And maybe in John's context... He could have made it more palatable by saying, you know, Jesus wore flesh, kind of like a garment, and and therefore there's a bit more separation. So maybe you could remain a bit pure. But actually John says he became flesh. He actually became fully man, fully flesh. In Jesus, God becomes fully man. So this was a very significant and countercultural teaching that the idea wasn't that you would ascend to the divine word, but actually that the divine word condescended so far that he would become flesh in order to redeem those in this realm of flesh, in order to redeem man. Now, that's the first century importance. If we skip 2000 years to the 21st century importance, our society Uh, I don't believe so much has objections about God's ability to take on flesh. That is if we just lay aside all of the people who just have objections about God in general. If we assume there is a belief in God, I don't think in our society there's so much of an issue with the idea of God becoming flesh. There's not so much of an issue with Jesus uh, being man because we already, in our environment like to, as I mentioned before, strip Christ of his godliness, of his deity. We like to strip him of his burning holiness because a Jesus that's really fleshly is a Jesus that's more okay with sin and a Jesus that's more okay with sin is fine by us. We we like to make Jesus more palatable to sinful people, kind of like Jesus is your friend or your homie, rather than a holy God who demands your allegiance to himself as Lord and who will call all to account. So in our society, there's not so much issues with God becoming flesh because we don't really think there's anything wrong with the flesh. The flesh is good. We like to boast in our flesh in this society. We like to actually uh, promote sinful and fleshly desires. So our objections in the 21st century aren't so much with the divine word becoming flesh, but rather that the fleshly Jesus remains the divine word, the holy God, in his entire time that the fleshly Jesus remains the divine word who created everything and who is utterly holy and will call all creation to account. And the beautiful thing about this passage, if we come back to just these first few words of in verse 14, and the word became flesh, the beautiful thing is this passage in its context refutes both a first century dualistic objection that said that Jesus only appeared to be man Because the flesh was bad, so why would Jesus enter in fully to become a man? 
It rejects that claim and says, no, God became flesh. Jesus was fully human, 100% human, 100% God. And this passage also rejects the claim that Jesus was just a meek and mild moral teacher who is actually very fleshly and he's, he is uh, okay with sin and he's okay with our fleshly desires because he was a man. He was a man just like you and me. This passage uh, rejects that claim if it's saying he was a man just like you and me as if to say he's not a holy God who's going to hold you to account. This passage actually refutes both of those claims and upholds the fact that the divine word who is fully God, who before anything existed was there, has entered into the flesh to become fully man so that in Jesus the miracle is the word becomes flesh, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now this is the significance of the word becoming flesh. Let's look at the significance of him dwelling among us. This idea is that the word pitches a tent among us or the word tabernacles among us. The word here clearly has a high level of intentionality about it. There's another word that's far more common in the Greek language that John could have used to dwell, uh, but he particularly uses a word here for tent. So that he says the word pitches a tent among us. So we're meant to have this idea of the Old Testament tabernacle. We're meant to have this idea of the tent of meeting as we read this. Now the tabernacle was of course the place of God's presence among his people when he saved them out of Egypt. It was the place of intimacy, the place where Moses would meet with God in the tent of meeting. And the tent or the tabernacle showed to us that God's desire is to dwell among us. This is the point of the tabernacle. He made sure they created the tabernacle and then later on the temple so that there would be this physical, purposeful, intentional place where God would dwell among his people, where God would actually be amongst him rather than remaining separate, where he would dwell in their midst. This shows that that is God's desire. It's the same word that John uses here for uh, dwelt among us that we have in Revelation 21.3 where we get a glimpse of the future, the fulfillment of God's purpose to dwell amongst us where we read in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the same word, the dwelling place, the, the place of where he pitches a tent. That's going to be among man. So that's the future, and the tabernacle demonstrated that this was the trajectory. God had a desire to dwell among us. Now, to get the full picture of this, we need to come back to Exodus in chapters 33 and 34 where in Exodus 33, we read how Moses used to take a tent. He was instructed to actually pitch a tent outside the camp so that he could meet with God. And the beautiful thing in Exodus 33:11, we read of the intimacy that existed with Moses and God there, where in verse 11 of chapter 33, we read, In this tent... Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
That's describing the intimacy that God, that Yahweh had with Moses. He would speak with Moses as a man speaks to his friend. That close. And in the next section of chapter 33, we have this famous request of Moses in verse 18, where he asks God, God, show me your glory. Let me see your glory. So in this place of the tent of intimacy, Moses asks God, show me your glory. That's what I desire. Show it to me. And God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And I'm going to proclaim my name. But God actually says, you can't see my face and live. So God passes by Moses in the cleft of the rock. He hides Moses and then he covers Moses' face as his goodness, his glory passes by. But he doesn't let Moses see his face, the fullness of it. So God's basic response to Moses is, well, I'm going to give you a pinch of my glory, which is going to be enough to make your face glow for days and days and days, but you can't see anywhere near the fullness of it or you'll just die. So here's a pinch of my glory, which will blow your mind. So get this picture of Moses in the tent of meeting with God. God's presence is there. It shows that his desire is to dwell amongst us. And in this tent, Moses asks God if he can see his glory. And now with that as a background, we come back to John chapter 1 and we read, And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. So in a way, John is saying that request of Moses in the tent to see the glory of God, we get a taste of in Jesus when God comes and pitches his tent among us so that we can behold his glory and we see the Glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in him, in Jesus, we see the glory of God. We see the, the, uh, 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 another fulfillment of this request of Moses because in Jesus, God has become man and chosen to dwell among us. And Jesus must radiate the glory of God. The word becomes flesh and pitches his tent among us. So that shows that God's desire is to dwell among us and points forward to the purpose of it, which is to behold his glory. So let's look now at beholding his glory. So though in the tent of meeting, it was only Moses who saw this concealed portion of God's glory, as Jesus pitches his tent by entering into humanity, it's now on a cosmic scope. It's a cosmic scope so that all who look to Jesus can behold the glory of God. Paul describes this, I mentioned a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians, as God shining a light into our hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the gospel. Sorry, the light of the knowledge of the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
This is the purpose of the incarnation, that we would behold the glory of God. It's God breaking in, answering the request of Moses in a way that we would behold his glory because his glory is what we were made for. Let's look at how John describes this glory. He describes the glory in verse 14 as glory as of the only son from the father. The word is the same word in verse 18. And it's used elsewhere, monogonase, the word is the only begotten, which is the uh, referring more to the role of the self-existent eternal son, God the son, in the Godhead, begotten, eternally begotten. Of course, not uh, created as in begotten, but the role, the eternally begotten son from the father. And this is why... He has glory. This is why Jesus has glory. Because he is the son of God who is God. This is actually a powerful witness to the deity of Christ. Not that we need to labor that point, but it's actually a powerful witness to the deity of Christ because we know that the one thing God would never do with his glory is give it to another. It's solely his. He will not yield his glory to another. So as glorious as the angels are in heaven, they don't receive glory. That's why whenever anyone bows down before them, the angels are very quick to say, no, do not worship me as though I'm worthy of any glory or honor. That's solely to God. We behold the glory of God in Jesus because in Jesus, God becomes flesh. And he must therefore radiate the glory of God. God would never give his glory to another. And he is not giving his glory to another in Jesus. Because the glory, as we will see in John 17, is rightly his before anything existed. It's an eternal glory. Look at that for a moment in John 17. In John 17, Jesus prays in verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed or before the foundation of the world. So this is the glory that we're beholding, an eternal glory that before anything was existed fully with the Father and the Son wrapped up by the Spirit in the Godhead, an eternal glory. And it is an eternal glory that we were made We were made to worship that glory in the Godhead in an uninhibited way. Jesus refers to this at the end of his prayer in verse 24 of John 17, where he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, referring to all of you and me, anyone who would believe from the disciples, I desire that they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is saying, we we had, Father, we have this glory in the Godhead that existed before anything. And now my desire, which is the Father's desire, because there is one consistent will within them, to actually have all of those who would believe in Jesus to behold this eternal glory, to see God the Son reconciled with God the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, that we would behold his glory. That is what we were made for. That's our goal and trajectory 
to behold the completely unveiled glory of God. Because though now there is an element of it being veiled, we long for the day where it will be completely unveiled, where we will behold that eternal glory to think. We will become outside of time. That's something that blows your mind to then enter into eternity to behold this wonderful, radiant glory of God. And we experience that reality now, this side of heaven, by coming to Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God. We see his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And this leads us to our last point, that all of this is seen completely in Jesus, because in Jesus is the source, as John clearly demonstrates here, in Jesus is the source of all glory. So the last bit of verse 14 says, uh, it is glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The fullness of grace and truth is connected with the glory. John is saying we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen the glory, he's full of grace and truth. Why specifically grace and truth mentioned here? Uh, I think a number of reasons, one of which... The only way we can know anything about the glory of God is because of his grace toward us in Jesus. The only way we can know anything about the glory of God is by God's graciousness toward us. Grace is an undeserved gift, and it is the undeserved gift of God to enter into humanity to redeem wicked and sinful people like you and me so that we could behold his glory. So only in God's gracious condescension. Only in his willing, which he didn't have to do, in his abundant grace to condescend to humanity, can we know anything about his glory rightly? Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from knowing the light of the glory of God. The God of this world darkens and blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from knowing the light of the glory of God. So it is only when God extends grace toward us that we know his glory. And he has extended grace toward us in Jesus. And in Jesus is the fullness of truth. Jesus will go on to say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am truth. He doesn't simply come to tell us something true. He comes to bring truth. He must because he is truth. Now, what does this have to do with God's desire to dwell among us so that we would behold his glory, which we see in Jesus, this idea of the grace and truth that is connected with the glory of God? Well, part of the point here, particularly in these next few verses, Part of the point of John is to demonstrate that when the word becomes flesh, it's not like Jesus was abstracted from God. I don't think we consciously think that, but subconsciously we might have this picture of like this disconnection of Jesus being sort of sent out on a mission, which he was, but as though he's sort of abstracted from the Father so that he becomes less God in some sense, or that there's just a, too much of a disconnect between them. He is God dwelling with us. There is a consistency between the creator God. 
who is the source of all life. John has laboured that in the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is God. He has laboured that connection. So to be full of grace and truth is something only God can be. The fullness of grace and truth only exists in God. He's the creator. He is truth. The fullness of it can only exist in God. Hence, Jesus, of course, is God. There is a connection. The word becomes flesh. We've seen his glory, full of grace and truth because he is God. There remains this connection. And it's possible that if we follow, if we follow this train of thought, John is continuing allusions back to Exodus 33 and 34, where we read of the first instance of God actually demonstrating very clearly that his desire was to dwell amongst his people and Moses' request to see his glory. It's possible that there are allusions back to this when he talks of the Son being full of grace and truth. Remember the very famous verse in Exodus 34, which comes on the back of that account in Exodus 33. Exodus 34, 6 after the glory of God passes by Moses and then Moses comes back onto Mount Sinai, there Yahweh proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, steadfast love and faithfulness are two Hebrew words which at their core can mean grace and truth. In fact, the NASB actually translates uh, that um, verse in Exodus 34, 6 as a God full of loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness, graciousness. So steadfast love is God's covenant love. His covenant love. Sometimes it's translated as mercy or loyalty. And faithfulness is his trustworthiness. So at its core, Yahweh is a God who is full of grace and truth, full of loving kindness and truth. And the divine word then becomes flesh, who is also full of grace and truth. There is no disconnect between the God of Israel who saved his people out of Egypt and then the divine word in Jesus coming flesh to save us out of the Egypt metaphorically of our sin. This idea of the consistency between Yahweh and the Word becomes even clearer when John directs our attention to verses 16 and 17. So if you'll allow me to just pass over verse 15, it's in parentheses already, but we'll actually pick up on this exact statement at the end of chapter 1 in verse, um, uh, verses 29 to 34, where we actually read of John the Baptist referring back to this. So I'm just going to skip over that there, because the end of verse 14 really... Reason why verse 15 is in parentheses, because it should be connected to verse 16. So we have the end of verse 14, full of grace and truth, and then verse 16, for from his fullness, so because from his fullness, so there should be a connection between from his fullness, which is the fullness of grace and truth. From this fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Now, you might have a little footnote in your Bible uh, that talks about um, grace upon grace as possibly being grace in place of grace. There has been an incredible amount of ink spilled over one little preposition here, which is upon. So uh, it's in the original language, it's the word anti, which is where we get antichrist, which is usually instead of. 
Now, I think, just to be clear, upon is a fine translation. I think so long as we understand what lies uh, underneath it. And to understand that, we need to look at verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We've got verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, because the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John is actually saying that the law is an extension of grace in the sense that it comes from the same source that grace and truth are coming from which is ultimately the divine word. And then in the divine word, taking on flesh and dwelling among us, grace and truth actually come. They are present. So we have received grace in place of grace. So the point is actually to see the connection between the God of Israel who graciously saved his people out of Egypt and then gifted them with the Torah, with the law, in order to say, hey, this is how you are to live now as my people as I enter into this covenant with you, and then we should see the connection to the word who has come in Jesus, who brings about grace and truth because he is the gracious and trustworthy God dwelling among us. It's saying that the law has its source from the same source of grace and truth, since it's an extension of grace and truth, but in Jesus Grace and truth actually come because the law was powerless to save sinful people. So the source actually comes in order to bring grace and truth so that in Jesus we see grace and truth. We see the condescension of the word becoming flesh. So from the fullness of grace and truth, from the fullness of grace and truth, we ultimately... That is, the people of Israel received the law, which was an extension, that is, from the same source. But then grace and truth came in the person of Jesus. The law being powerless to save, even though the law is just, holy, and good, Paul refers to, the problem is us. So that it was a gracious thing for God to save his people out of Egypt and extend grace to them in giving them instructions, which law... Torah literally means instruction, giving them instructions for how they are to live. But then on top of that, upon that, grace and truth come. They enter into the world because in the word become flesh. From the fullness of grace and truth, we actually receive grace and truth because God himself, the source of it all, enters in. There's no separation as though the law creates a bit of a barrier between us and God because we can't bridge that law, but actually in the word becoming flesh, it's like God steps out from around the law to then bring us into his presence as Jesus accomplishes the law in our place. So it is ultimately the one source. This is the point. The word who was in the beginning with God and who is God, who has the fullness of grace and truth, from that fullness, we have received grace upon grace because the law was given through Moses from the same source, ultimately, that is the word. But then in God's abundant mercy, he comes in Jesus to bring grace and truth, to bring us into his presence, that we would know him and adore him and behold his glory for all eternity. And finally, in verse 18, 
We have John's reminder Again, that it is only in Jesus that we come to know God. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, that is the eternally begotten Son of God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Quite simply saying, the unseen God has revealed himself in Jesus. In Jesus we see God. That's why when the disciples come to Jesus and say, show us the Father, and Jesus says to Philip, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And in him, we see that God's desire is to dwell among us so that we would behold his glory, which we see in Jesus. Now, I've got two very quick applications for us. The first is that if God's desire is to dwell among us, we must therefore desire to be a dwelling place. If God's desire is to dwell among us, we must desire to be a dwelling place for God. Now, Paul actually uses this language in Ephesians 2. At the end of Ephesians 2, he's using temple language and he says to the church, you are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has shown his desire is to dwell among you. Now, you as the church are being built as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has clearly revealed that he desires to dwell among us. And we see here that Paul uses this idea to show that as followers of Jesus who are part of the church, we are being built together into a dwelling place. That's going to be the whole purpose of our future trajectory is that God, Revelation 21.3, his dwelling place will be among man, uninhibited. That's our purpose. So Paul is saying, if this is the case, then we should be living now as though we are preparing ourselves to be a dwelling place for God. This should change the way we think and live. Imagine if a loved, a much-loved relative was coming to live with you and your house was a mess. You would spend time getting that dwelling place ready for them out of sheer love toward them so a question for us is do we live as though god could live amongst us if god as the song says was one of us which he has and is if god's dwelling place is going to be among us and we knew that that was happening now would we talk differently would we do things differently in our house Would we be more hospitable to show God that we actually are loving toward our neighbours? Would it change the way we live? Because if that is the case, we should be making those changes now. We are being built into a dwelling place for God. Implication of that being that we live coram Deo, before the face of God. We should live as though God is amongst us. For he is by his spirit and in his church. And especially, we should live in a way that is consistent with that in our homes. Do you live as though God could live among you? The last application. Don't seek to be filled from anything other than his fullness. Don't seek to be filled from anything other than his fullness. A constant danger for us in this consumeristic society is to attempt to be satisfied 
to attempt to find purpose to be filled from things that are not ultimately of Christ. That's the ongoing temptation. In Christ, the fullness of grace and truth dwell. So apart from him, logically, it follows there is no grace or truth, therefore is simply punishment and lies if you are disconnected from Christ. So we cannot seek to be filled in any place other than Christ. Now, if I stick with the Apostle Paul, he again, I think, takes this idea and he warns the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, which depends upon human tradition and elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him... The whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So Paul is saying, don't be taken captive. Don't become a prisoner to the emptiness of philosophy, of worldly philosophy or deceit that is simply man-made. He's saying here it's human tradition and not upon Christ. So, for example, when people attempt to pursue justice through modern ideologies like racial reconciliation or healing the land or these sorts of things, they do not have their foundation in Christ. They're simply empty. They're empty. They're built off human tradition as though we can somehow achieve justice of our own accord without the just God. It's emptiness or when we attempt to find satisfaction through a new relationship, through a new product, a new experience, we have been taken captive to this modern ideology of a consumeristic world that says that you must have something new, whether it be a product or an experience, to feel satisfied. More is better. Bigger is better. It's easy for us to be taken captive by that and there is no power to transform an unsatisfied soul in that. There's nothing. It's void. The only power to transform anyone comes from beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because when you do, you are coming to the one in whom is the fullness of grace and truth. The only power to transform anyone is by the gospel, is by actually coming to the Christ in whom is the fullness of grace and truth. In him the fullness of God dwells. In him is living water. In him is true nourishment. So don't be taken captive by anyone or anything other than the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. And it is a subtle and demonic thing to be taken off of that trajectory onto something of emptiness, which is why Paul warns us, don't be taken captive by these modern ideologies, by vain philosophy that's just upon human tradition and not upon Christ, because in him the fullness of God dwells and you've been filled in him, so why would you go anywhere else? Come back to Christ. So in summary, God's desire is to dwell among us What a beautiful reality that the God of heaven and earth doesn't remain distant. He actually shows that his desire is to dwell among us. And he has done that in the person of Jesus so that we could behold his glory 
which is our purpose, to just be captivated and worship and actually share in the glory of God in heaven in an uninhibited way as we worship the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. We see all of this in Jesus. Therefore, we live as though we are a dwelling place for God and we be filled by coming to Christ in all things.